Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. We're coming to you from Tourist in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Euro Nation. I'm Anthony Dockrell. Each week we take a closer look at the business issues making up the news. This program is made possible by the assistance of the UTS Business School. Our first show of 2023 is a deep dive into one of the biggest corporate scandals of recent years. Price Cooper's Waterhouse is one of the big four accounting firms, and the firm is now in serious damage control as it tries to deal with the fallout from the tax leak scandal. This scandal has started a debate not just about the corporate culture of PwC, but the very nature of the relationship between government and business. With the federal police called in and a number of partners on leave, the long-term implications of this scandal may be very large indeed. To discuss this, we are very fortunate to have Professor Carl Rhodes, who is the Dean at the UTS Business School. Professor Carl Rhodes, welcome to Think Business Futures. Great to be here, Anthony. Look, corporate scandals are not necessarily unheard of, but it's fair to say they don't happen on this scale very often, or to one of the big four accounting firms for Mm. that matter. When the story first broke, were you surprised by what you were seeing? Um... uh Sadly, no, I wasn't surprised. I mean, perhaps a little bit surprised that it had been uncovered. But, um, uh, you know, there are scandals do happen from time to time. Banking is an area that, that is... Uh that is often the case. Um, there have been consulting scandals in the past, and they come up for, from time to time. So I wasn't entirely surprised, because I think what happened was entirely in keeping with some aspects of contemporary corporate culture. So it wasn't ironic. For those who don't fully understand what happened, do, do you mind just unpacking a little bit about what PwC has done whilst working for the government? Yeah, I mean, this has actually been going on for for five or six years. Um, uh, when the Australian government hired PricewaterhouseCoopers to come up with a new approach um, to ensuring that large corporations fully paid the tax that they owed the Australian government. It was a particular, the focus was on multinational corporations um, who are offshoring tax and not paying the fair share of tax here. So the government hired PwC. PwC went about its its business of developing this program for the government. In terms of the scandal, that really started in January when it was revealed that the Tax Practitioners Board had terminated the registration of uh, one of PwC's Australian uh, former head of international tax, a guy called Peter John Collins. Um, uh, And the reason for this is that confidential details of the anti-tax avoidance uh, scheme were actually shared by him with others at PricewaterhouseCoopers and then effectively sold to their corporate clients. So the scandal is that PwC are hired to help the Australian governments prevent tax avoidance, and then PwC sells the details of that to the very people who may well be avoiding the tax. I mean, it is, as the word suggests, scandalous. That was back in January. That didn't only got mild scandal. The real thing blew up um, in early March. Sorry, sorry, in May. But in March, the Senate had announced an inquiry into the integrity of consulting services. 
Um, and PwC had been downplaying the whole thing. But what happened um, last month um, was that the inquiry published emails that showed that 40 of the of the partners at PwC knew about this, including the CEO, and apparently nothing had been done. And that was when it re- the scandal really became big and has has you know continued to be um, uh, on the boil ever since then um, uh, in the public eye, in the press, and in Canberra. So look, PwC put something like nine of its partners on leave. Mm -hmm. There's talk that some 50 people uh, perhaps internally had access to the information. The federal police have been called in. It's a mess. It's a real mess. I mean, there has been significant consequences. Um, as you said, the CEO uh, lost a top job and, and will retire. He wasn't sacked, though. You know, um, it's not just referred to the federal police. There's, there's even talk of potential jail time for some of the, the people involved. And as well, you know, PwC has been virtually banned from taking on new federal government contracts. And then there's the reputational damage. What other firms would now want to hire PwC, given their brand has been tarnished with this. So the consequences for PwC are serious, and clearly they realize that. They're in full damage control Mm. uh, mode, trying to to diminish it. They've put in an interim CEO. There's people come out from their global business to Australia to help manage um, what really is a very, uh, on the one hand, politically, it's terrible. But from their perspective, commercially, it's also very dangerous to them. It's been reported that they made about $2.5 million from basically handing over this advice to, to these multinational companies. Yeah. I'm guessing that the damage is in, well in excess of $2.5 million. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean you know, $2.5 million is a lot of money to you and I. Yeah. Uh, but to a big company like PwC, that's kind of, you know, changed. That's a, a fraction of what some of the partners would be earning every year personally. So it's not, it's not the money that's the issue with them. It's the fact that they engage in this and really with no regard for the conflict of interest with no regard for the public good uh, the people who are involved simply found an opportunity to make a bit of money and without any care about the consequences for anybody but themselves went ahead and engaged in it it's it's brazen uh, behaviour. Well, uh, yes, it is. Over uh, what is a small amount of money, they've essentially risked the entire company. This does point to a corporate culture, doesn't it, inside PwC when something like this is going on? And and when you're talking about nine partners on leave, possibly multiple numbers of that uh, were informed about the matter, it, it's not a rogue apple, is it? No, not at all. Um, uh and, you know, the, the new interim CEO of PwC uh, came out with a statement, I think it was last week, blaming the, the aggressive profit-seeking in the tax division. But you've got to wonder how much broader in this. It's not a single bad apple. And a phrase often misused because the bad apple ruins all the other apples. Mm. Um, uh, and, you know, that's something that would be more to worry about. And I think you've got to worry about this aggressive approach to to profiteering um, that seemingly regards selfish as a selfishness as a virtue to borrow a phrase is it just limited to PwC or is this become infected into the broader range of business culture in Australia and beyond I think that's the real bigger thing that this is signaling that we should worry about yes yeah, so there's there's really two aspects here that I, I want to unpack I mean one is we've just been talking about about the corporate culture uh, operating within side PwC, but it's also the, this relationship between government and business that is also here. And you've written about 
about this matter recently in the conversation. You made the point the problem is the mixing of church and state. Can you can you explain what you mean by that, and 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 how you see the roles of government and business? Yeah, I mean, I was just drawing an analogy between the issues that came up in early European democracy and American democracy about the need to separate church and state, um, uh, uh, and essentially to protect religious freedom um, so that a particular religion wouldn't get in charge of the government and then persecute members of uh, of, uh, competing religions, if I can use that, that, that term. But another part of the reason is that the interests of religion and the interests of government being quite independent. And I think if we look at what's happened here, we have the the interests of a private corporation taking precedence over the interest of government. And the interest of government, uh, of a democratic government, is the interest of all the people, of all the citizens, you, me, your listeners, and everybody else. But the decisions being made by this corporation were entirely in the financial interests of the partners of PwC, the owners of the corporation, and to some extent to the interest of their corporate clients. And this is the conflict of interest that arose and, um, uh, and that was ignored. And because of those separate interests, analogous to the separation of, of um church and state. Maybe we also need a separation of corporations and state. So there's not such a cozy relationship between uh, democratic government um, and the, the provision of services by by private companies, consulting companies. But there's also broader modes of influence too, through lobbying, through um, uh, political donations to parties. And it seems that it's a uh, yeah, it's a very cozy relationship, which lends itself open to exactly the kind of problems we see here. Um, uh, and it's the government's responsibility or the state's responsibility to govern, and that includes governing corporations. And if those corporations are also the ones providing you with advice, we've got a very tangled web um, uh, which can lead to significant problems such as the one we've seen here. It's kind of ironic that we're talking about what is you know, an inherent aspect of liberalism that was learnt a long time ago that you know you separate the government and the and the church apart from each other mm. because they have competing interests and they have different goals. Yeah. We, but we've then turned around and made the same mistake with business and government. Yep, I think that is the case. I mean, and that's something that's been building um, uh, over the last forty years or so. We've seen major uh, changes in liberal democracies. The 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 corporation has become the dominant corporate form. There's been the sell-off of previously, uh, the privatization of, of previously state-owned enterprise. You know, uh, the mutuals are demutualized, co-ops aren't popular. So the corporation um, generally has become uh, um, uh, the dominant uh, form in the economy and has become increasingly powerful um, and has been deregulated um, in many ways and seen, seen as a driver of, uh, of economic growth. At one point, we were sold the ball phase lie of trickle-down economics. If we kind of, you know, reduce taxes to corporations and rich people, we all benefit. It hasn't happened. We've got inequality um, instead. So this immense power that corporations hold, um, as we've seen here, is also uh, includes power over democratic governments. That's, as far as I'm concerned, the tail's wagging the dog with that. Is this a case of government's 
over a long period of time being quite naive about entering in these arrangements, or is this something like neoliberalism? What's going on here? I think, I mean, we could call it neoliberalism, although that is a word that uh, the the meaning of which has become Mm. a bit diluted or or dispersed. But it is neoliberalism in the sense that there's the belief that that uh, that markets are the best way to organise. The belief that uh, you know, by the pursuit of private interests, the public interests um, will also be met. So there is certainly an ideological dimension to this, um, uh, which is a bipartisan ideology um, in this country, or has been historically, um, uh, that things can be dealt with um, by corporations, by market forces, and, and by the private sector. And I think the bigger question that arises from PwC is not just about what happens to PwC, but what is the real role and responsibility of business in society because it seems way overstepping the mark when business is effectively becoming a quasi-public service. And look, this is a line that I want to see if we can work work our way through here. It's very clear that government and business, the lines are blurred. Mm. That, that, that's a, a very non-contested space. And, and the, the figure that I heard recently is that the government spends something like $21 billion a year on consultants and services mm. from, the, from the business sector. You know, so, and obviously, there would be a huge range of services that are coming to the government from the business sector. Where do we draw the line? Because mm. obviously, the line has to be drawn somewhere. We don't necessarily need the public service cleaning its offices or something like that. Yeah. I'm sure that happened in the past. But where, where is the line as far as you see it? I think the line is where the work that is outsourced from the public to the private sector is done so in when the, pr- the private sector then has a direct influence on the public sector as far as political decisions are concerned, as far as state administration is concerned, and as far as uh, the provision of public services is concerned. I think that's the division is there. And the PWC case is way on the other side of that line. Yes. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the public service. Now, it it used to be a closed shop, and Mm. it was traditionally independent, uh, a place of deep cultural knowledge. That's all changed now. And uh, I remember people talking at the time that the Howard government broke down the power of the public service, yeah. politicized parts of it. Is that where the problem started or do you think it goes back even further? I think that's where the problem um, uh, became much bigger. I mean, you know, these kind of reforms were happening from the late 70s and yeah. it was changes in Margaret Thatcher's Britain and Ronald Reagan's US and the whole movement towards deregulation, you know, open markets and and a kind of uh, renewed belief in capitalism. We had the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, that we were told uh, by Fukuyama that there was no alternative and this view that, you know, capitalism, liberal democracy and capitalism um, would reign. So I think it all came up from there. I think the Howard government um, uh, took that on and, uh, and 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 kind of took it to a whole new level in this, that country. But they were they they didn't invent this. They were they were followers more than leaders when it came to uh, to these kind of changes. And look, it does seem a, a pretty clear uh, line that's come from the right that you know government is the problem, and you know Ronald Reagan said that in the eighties. Um, it was very clear to me, though, that during the pandemic, we all looked towards the government for services, for a whole lot of things that we needed to be done. We suddenly wanted the government to be there, to be efficient, to be able to move quickly and be nimble, be powerful. Mm. 
so it seems to me that we we do want to function in government. Yeah. Um, but do we actually have one? I, the thing about the pandemic is, I mean, I completely agree with you. The response to the pandemic, in terms of the kinds of investments that, that were needed to address the issues, the investments that were needed to to, uh, to produce vaccines, the kind of public health decisions that were made, they could only be made by government. Um, and, you know, not everything was perfect, hmm. but it, by and large, this was uh, an important and effective response and done in countries around the world. And I remember at the time thinking... Maybe this will be the end. Maybe this will be the end in the belief in small small government or the insignificance of, of government. And maybe we can see from this a different way forward. But since the end of the pandemic, it seems to be largely, those lessons seem to have largely been forgotten. But I think it is yeah. definitely worth remembering them. Yes, look, it does seem that we, we just wanted to forget that time, unfortunately. Yeah. So the lessons that were there have been, have been unfortunately buried. Mm. But look, it's pretty clear, Let's and this is, I guess, a bit of a summary in some respects, that the government has been exploited by the very companies that's paid to provide service to it. And, and you've talked about this church and state model. Mm. We, we're in a situation now where the government can't rely on the public service because it, it's lacking the skills and the ability to, to, to fill the space that's now currently filled by consultants and yeah. by business. Are we stuck? Well, things can always change. That's one thing we know from history. So, yeah, we're kind of in a bit of a hole. But what's required is not just the issue of dealing with the PWC case through federal police investigations and, and you know, and um, uh, and specifically dealing with the issues there, although that's why, why that's important. Will it open up a broader discussion um, so that, that we can see a political will to create a new vision for the role of government in society and the role of business in society. Having said that, I don't want to come across as being anti-business because I'm very not, I'm very much not so, but we need to see that the the ways that businesses contribute to society is through creating meaningful and reliable jobs, through providing goods and services that are of value, and paying tax that pays for the things that, that, that we need as, as public services. But that's not what we're getting at the moment. Instead of meaningful jobs, we're getting increasingly precarious employment, growing economic inequality. I mean, don't even get me started on CEO pay. Instead of meaningful goods and services, we're getting inflation that's fueled by corporate, corporate profiteering. And, well, paying tax, the PwC case, you know, tax is seen as a, a cost to be avoided. So I think there needs to be a rethinking both of the role of government in society, but also of the real value that business can provide to society, but seems to have steered away from. Instead, you know, we get the scandals like the one we've got now. Yes. And look, it does cut to the heart of, of what business does and, and also what business thinks that it does. Mm. I mean, PwC is one of the big four accounting firms, I was astounded to see how many people it employs. It's a, it's a staggering number, isn't it? I think uh, I checked on their website and I think it came out at 328,000 people. And that's across 152 countries. It's, it's staggering the size of this company. But if this company of, of, this, of this reputation and of this size is confused about what it's meant to be doing, then there's obviously a, a problem this problem is uh, endemic to business at the moment. How do you see that role changing then? So uh, obviously you, you talked about a role for business and an important role for business. Mm. 
it also seems to me that that role for business is one where it understands what it what its role is and and where its limits are. Yeah. Why do you think business has forgotten that, that it actually has a limit? Because uh, becoming enamoured with uh, profitability, becoming enamoured with the creation of shareholder value and the whole move of shareholder primacy as it existed, uh, as it started again in the 80s and 90s and arguably is still there. So the reason is because there's money in it for them and there's power in it for them. And that what needs that's what needs to be controlled. I mean, that's the whole nature of the social contract in the same way that you and I can't go around doing whatever we like without mm. restrictions on society so we can live, you know, well and peaceably t- together. Similar social contract for business. And it's become pushed and pushed and pushed well beyond its limits. Again, that requires a long-term political vision. I mean, I'm the dean of a business school. It also requires us to change the way that we train future people in business. We need a long-term vision for a, a society of shared prosperity, where increasingly what we're getting with these kind of things is Australia is becoming a, a winner-takes-all society as inequality expands, young mm. people can't afford housing, you know, um, uh, people with good jobs get paid uh, excessive amounts and the the rest are left to languish. This is the, the direction we're heading in. And to my view, that needs to be turned around now. Let's turn to the government. Look, Labor's been taking this matter seriously. And uh, Treasurer Jim Chalmers was on Radio National Breakfast this morning talking pretty strongly. Do you think the government has the stomach to take on these companies? That would be a big thing for the government to do. This, I think this government has uh, significantly more stomach than the previous one would have had. Um, and I think there's certainly um, support in Senate uh, from the Greens. Barbara Pocock in particular has been very erudite out and outspoken yep. on these issues. So I think it's the, there is the potential to do it. But again, at the moment, I'm just a little bit afraid that the issues are just about how can we deal with this thing that's going on at PwC, which is like dealing with the symptom of a virus without actually trying to address the virus itself. And that virus is the broader role of business in society, um, the broader power that has accrued to corporations over government, and the need to, to restore the primacy of, uh, of democracy as, as the ruling system in this country. Because it, it does feel that this will be, you know, the bad apples in the barrel kind of situation mm. and then move on. There's been talk about what PwC needs to do is to build a ring fence around its government uh, clients, away from its corporate clients. Would that work? Um, well, there were things put in place uh, around confidentiality, uh, confidentiality agreements in this case, and they didn't work. So I'm not sure that a ring fence would necessarily uh, be effective within the same company. I mean, there's also talk of breaking up the big company so that these kind of arms of them um, are separate. Um, so, I mean, a ring fence would perhaps be a little bit more effective, but would it necessarily prevent this? I haven't seen any arguments to convince me of that. Well, Peter Collins apparently had signed three confidentiality yeah. agreements uh, that didn't stop him emailing um, multiple partners about it. And I'm sure they go to the Christmas party together and... Let's, okay, let's end on a, a, on a, a positive note here. So if you had the capacity to put the genie back in the bottle, what are some of the steps you would take? That is uh, a difficult imagining, but 
on the one hand, I would deal with the PWC case immediately. And I think the government's doing a good job of that now. So I wouldn't change that. But I would use that as the basis for a broader political discussion and debate about um, uh, the, about the future of the, as I've said before, about the role of, of business in society, and really looking strongly at what can be done in terms of economic policy, what can be done in terms of um, legislation, what can be done in terms of education to create longer term systemic changes so we can create an economy that benefits the many rather than the few. It strikes me we've been talking really about a company with a bad culture mm. um, operating in a confused system uh, between government and business. But on a positive note, it does strike me that there is generational change coming through. You, you talked about the universities. The universities mm. are definitely much more focused on bringing uh, students along thinking in much more uh, ethical terms. Yeah. Do you also see that um, given time that some of these issues might disappear when a, a new generation of people enter the workforce and, and start changing the company, these companies from the ground up? I certainly hope so. And I am seeing that change and I'm, and I'm seeing that change in terms of the students who are entering university now who are much more uh, politicized, much more kind of ethically conscious perhaps than, than I've seen at any previous time uh, in my career. I would say perhaps more politicized than any time since the, the 1960s. Um, and I think that can make a difference. We've seen, and some court, some businesses have changed many aspects of of their behaviour, and a lot of that is in response to uh, to employees and to, who are also citizens, of course. So, again, you know, there are many corporations who are taking greater interest in in uh, more socially relevant things. Um, they tend, however, not to be basic economic issues. We have companies doing great work in terms of climate. We have companies doing great work in terms of supporting other uh, socially progressive uh, movements. Dealing with economic equality, less so. Um, uh, looking at the issue of trade unionism, less so. Looking at the universal basic income, um, addressing uh, exorbitant e executive pay. These are core economic matters uh, are being less considered. But many corporations are doing great things. But I don't think we can rely on corporate interests to address social needs. That is a political responsibility, not a commercial one. On that note, Professor Carl Rhodes, thanks for being on Think Business Futures. Absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of Tourist Sydney and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. If you want to listen to this program again or share it with your friends, just go to touristcr.com or you can get Think Business Futures wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week. I'm Anthony Dockwell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>